Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Common Ground Podcast. Common Ground is a core class that meets weekly at Christ Presbyterian Church in Nashville, Tennessee. Our teacher, Lyric Fesco, is using this series to take a look at some of the parables of Christ. We hope you enjoy the podcast. A number of you uh, have kids here that, that went back to school this week, and uh, we probably have at least a couple of teachers uh, here with us that, that also maybe went back to school or about to go back to school. And uh, my kids were none too pleased that it was time to go back to school this week. And in their defense, it, it doesn't seem like summer was that long. I remember when I was a kid, I, I grew up in California, at least in my uh, elementary school years. And it's, they took every occasion to, to, t- to have a holiday in California. And uh, we had a good solid three months. Plus, we even had Veterans Day off, which is, which is maybe not unusual. But I really love the fact that we got Veterans Day off because my birthday happens to be on Veterans Day. So I had every birthday I had off. So I really just got this feeling that, wow, we take a lot of holidays here in California. Not so much here. Uh, I remember, we, you know, we would begin uh, summer early to mid-June, and we didn't go back to school until after Labor Day. That was, that was wonderful. It was really a solid three months. Now it's more, more like two months off for the kids. And um, now some may argue that's, uh, that's a good thing, that they get a shorter summer. Some may argue it's a bad thing. I have a friend who's a teacher that says, I got into teaching for three reasons, and those three reasons are June, July, and August. <laughs> And now it's just more like July and, and uh, or June and July. And, and the reason the summers are shorter is because someone somewhere did some research that, that showed that if kids only take two months off in the summer, they retain more of what they learned in the previous year. So it's closer to that, that year-round model. Uh, there's less time to forget what they've learned. Now, I don't know if that's true or not. It makes good sense, but I don't know if it's true or not. But, but be that as it may, my kids were not enthusiastic about going back to school this week. Nevertheless, my wife and I, we try and encourage them by telling them how much fun they're going to have this year and they'll they'll be with all their friends and whatnot. It's had little impact. Uh, Nevertheless, they don't have a say in the matter. They have to go to school. Good luck, kids. So part of of being a student is showing up. You got to show up, right? And if you're going to be a good student, you have to show up. But listen, showing up is, just showing up is not enough. Uh, That's just the first step, all right? That's just the first step. What what else goes into being a good student? What, what, what What makes someone a good student? Anyone have any things they want to throw out there? Maybe the teachers? Perhaps if they just listen, if they would just listen, right? Open-mindedness. <laughs> Open-mindedness. Okay, good. Anything else? Regular study. Regular study. So not just, not, again, not just showing up, but doing the, the extra work too, right? Anything else? Listening. Mindset. Listening. Listening. Yes, please listen. And what? And a growth mindset, you know, a, a, a willingness to learn. That's, that's actually the next thing I was going to go into. It's not just showing up, but good students want to show up. Okay, they, they want to learn. The ones that have a desire to learn end up being the best students. You know when I really started, when, when I turned the corner, when I started becoming a good student, was right around the second, uh, second to third year of college and into graduate school. You know why? Because I was actually studying the things that I wanted to learn. You know, that's when you start taking your, your, uh, your major classes and, uh, and, and things that you actually want to know. What else makes a good student? What about, what about discipline? We, 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 we bounced around in there. What about, what about the word discipline? You know, uh, what, is it, what does discipline mean? I'm asking you what discipline means because I want to show you how it connects to the word uh, disciple, okay? And uh, so I decided to Google the definition of discipline, and, and here's what I got. It sort of backfired on me, all right? So uh, let's go make disciples with this definition of discipline. The practice of training people to obey rules or a code of behavior using punishment to correct disobedience. <laughs> this is how we want to go uh, evangelize the world, right? Maybe the definition is different if we use the verb. If we use the verb, it is 
to train someone to obey the rules or code of conduct and behavior using punishment <laughs> to correct disobedience. All right, well, uh, I feel like uh, these one-sentence definitions has everything we don't want to do in making disciples, you know, r- rules, codes of conduct, punishment, it has it all. Thanks, English language. So, uh, but if you go to the original Latin word, which is uh, disciplina, uh, that word means teaching and learning, okay? Teaching and learning. So to make disciples, if that's what we're called to do, to make disciples, we're being called to teach and, and make learners, all right? Disciples of Christ are people who are, who are taught or are in the process of learning about and applying the teachings of Jesus Christ to their lives. So, just like we asked a bit ago, what makes a good student? What is it that makes a good, good disciple? Well, I have good news for you. In the book of Matthew, we get a nice little manual of what it, what it means to be a, a disciple of Christ. Uh, from Matthew 5 through about Matthew 7, we have a discourse that is known as the Sermon on the Mount. And in that sermon, in a nutshell, we have Jesus telling us what it is to be a disciple. And, and in the chapter just before that, we have Jesus calling his, so about chapter 4, we have Jesus calling his first disciples. And then right in the start of the next chapter, chapter 5, he details from the privileges and demands of, of, uh, of being um, a, uh, what, what he's calling them to, to, to uh, uh, be a disciple. That's what Matthew chapter 5, 6, and 7 are all about. It's a manual on what it is and what it means to be a disciple, and it's known as the Sermon on the Mount. Maybe you've heard of that. And here's what's interesting about this sermon. What's interesting about the sermon is, is how it ends. The Sermon on the Mount ends with a parable. It ends with a parable. Uh, let's read the end of the sermon. This is the end of the sermon, which is a parable, and then we're going to go back up a bit in the verses that lead up to it so we can really try and, and absorb what the parable is teaching. Uh, late yesterday, I sent an email, and I teased the parable we're going to be looking at today, uh, and I asked you what it meant. And so we'll, we'll just kind of look at that today. Let's read through it, and then let's discuss what you think it might mean And uh, uh, if you just read the parable itself. If you just read the parable itself. This is Matthew 7, uh, verse 24 to 27. Matthew 7, 24 to 27 says this. Everyone then who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock. And the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and beat on that house, but it did not fall because it had been founded on the rock. And everyone who hears these words of mine and does not do them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. And the rains fell and the floods came and the winds blew and beat against that house and it fell. And great was the fall of it. All right, so there's our parable. All right. How, how many of you remember the song growing up? Did anyone learn this song in, in Sunday school? Yes, a few of you. How, you, you learned it? Do you know it? Built his house upon the rock. I was going to say, how awkward it'd be if we all just sang it, but for, but for Winston's sake, maybe we should. The, the, the wise man built his house. Ha- well, you know what? We, we can sing this if you'd like because I have the, the lyrics. I prepared them for you. No, uh, we don't have to sing that. But for, for Winston's sake, let's review it. It's, it says, The wise man built his house upon the rock. Wise man built his house upon the rock. Uh, and, and the rains came down, da- and the rains came a tumbling down. The rains came down, and the floods came up. Rains came down, and the floods came up. And the house on the rock stood firm. Okay. And then the second verse: the foolish man built his house upon the sand. And the rains came a tumbling down. The rains came down, and the floods came up. Rains came down, floods came up. Okay. And then here's the payoff. And what happened to the house that was built upon the sand? And the house on the sand went splat. Splat. <laughs> Splat or smash, depending on the region of the country you grew up in, different translations, interpretations. So that's all, that's all our information. 
That's all the information we have. We have a parable and a song. So, so what is this parable teaching us? Uh, it, it, we have a wise man and a foolish man. Wise men built their house on the rock. Foolish men built their house on the sand. So what's the moral of the story? Build your house on the rock. What does that mean, though? What does it mean to build your house on the rock? How do you answer that question? If someone asks you, what does that song or what does that parable mean? How do you answer them? It means... Um, yeah, what you got for us, Winston? It means that if you sinners, if you, the rich people are really thinking that they're actually the, the loveliest of Jesus, but actually the poorest people are loving Jesus. So, uh, Rich people go to heaven, and is that, is that, is that, is that what we're saying? <laughs> who wants to help Winston out? What is, what does, what does the, uh, what is, what's the moral of the story here? What are we trying to say? Yes. Build your house on the Lord Jesus. Build your house on the Lord Jesus Christ. The, the, that's, that's wisdom, to build your house on the Lord Jesus Christ. And, and, uh, and, and we can even say, uh, be wise, maybe concisely we would say be wise by making Christ your foundation, right? Be wise by making Christ your foundation. Anything else is foolishness, okay? And on a test, if you were to write that answer down, I would give you credit for it, but there's still more. There's still more to this lesson here. So if you pull it out of context and only read this, you're not getting the full scope of what's being taught here. And that's what I love about these parables. That's what I love about this. Let's see what we're missing here. Remember, this parable is the ending. This is the ending to the whole sermon. Okay, the summary of what comes before it is in the context of discipleship. Jesus is teaching about discipleship. Being a good disciple, the, the, the parable is the, this, is the period. It's the period to the sections that come right before it. So let's see what is coming right before it, all right? Here's what Jesus is doing. It's almost like Jesus is drawing a, a pie chart or Venn diagram. Do you remember Venn diagrams? Do you remember what Venn diagrams are? You draw a big circle. All these people like tacos, okay? And all these people like spaghetti, and when you combine those two circles and the intersection that they're, they're, they're in exists are the people that like tacos and spaghetti. Maybe not at the same time, but sounds good to me. I don't know. Tacos and spaghetti. Okay, so that's, that's, what, that's what Jesus is doing here. He's sort of creating subsets, uh, making subsets of discipleship. Let's look at the first subset, verse 13 and 14, which says this. Enter by the narrow gate. For the gate is wide, and the way is easy that leads to destruction, and those who enter by it are many. For the gate is narrow, and the way is hard that leads to life, and those who find it are few. So that's the first subset, okay? He's taking all the people and then dividing those people, saying a, a disciple of Christ is a person who's willing to go through the narrow gate. In other words, to be a disciple of Christ, you're, you're, you're going to take the road less traveled, all right? You'll often not be in the majority position. You'll, you'll often find yourself in the minority, okay? So there are those that are willing to go through the narrow gate, and there are those who are, aren't willing to go through the narrow gate. So, so it's all settled now. We know what a disciple is. There are those, those willing to go through the narrow gate, those are disciples, and those that are not willing to go through the narrow gate, those aren't disciples. That's it, right? There's still more to it. There's still more narrowing that we're doing here. Uh, I've made jokes in here about the fact that uh, I'm getting old. All right. And I realize that, that more and more each day, and there, there are certain measures that an aging person takes to try and combat the aging. All right. What I mean by combat the aging is simply, you know, making efforts to not feel as old as you actually are. For example, I, I told you my love for shoes that's rooted in aging. I can't control the way my body disintegrates, but doggone it, I can wear nice shoes. So that's what I do. I'm fighting aging. I'm fighting aging. I do my best to... Uh, 
uh, I still exercise every day. Uh, that, that could be running or going to the gym or walking. I do one of those activities every single day. I'm trying to stay in shape. I'm trying to fight aging, I'm trying to fight the aging. I, I do my best to try and stay on top of uh, technology and all the things that are happening there and stay on the technology curve. You know, my son believes he knows more about iPhones and, and computers than I do, but he does not. I simply put on a facade of humility to make him think that he does. <laughs> He does not. I know more. All right. I even try and stay on top of the latest the sort of trends. And there's a fine line with this. OK, I'm in my 40s and I, and I feel it's my responsibility to dress like someone in their 40s. Uh, therefore, my pants will not be any more skinny than they are right now. That's it. I've aged out of anything skinnier. That, that's it. That's it. <laughs> These are called slim cut. OK. <laughs> I do think there are fashion trends that you just age out of. The proof of that is, does anyone want to see their grandpa in skinny jeans? No, no one does. Probably not. But I do feel like there's a style of clothing that you can, that you can wear that is age appropriate that doesn't, that doesn't highlight your age. You know, it's very tricky, but I like to stay on top of things that way. I'm also still thinking about buying a Jeep. I want to buy a Jeep. That's certainly a way of combating my age. Uh, something that might feel younger than I actually am. Some of you might call that a midlife crisis car. I respectfully disagree. <laughs> So you do all these things to try and combat aging, you know, things that make you look and feel younger than I actually am. And then you board a, a roller coaster a couple weeks ago like I did. <laughs> you can't fool a roller coaster when it comes to age. I rode Space Mountain with my kids, and it's, one of, it's my, son's, my older son's favorite roller coaster. And I remember I rode that roller coaster for the first time when I was in, in uh, sixth grade, and I loved it. I could have ridden that thing a thousand times and not felt any negative effects uh, from it. You know, the first time I rode that roller coaster, this is a true story, first time I rode that roller coaster, my grandmother rode it as well. Okay, she would have been in her 60s at the time, and I'm not exaggerating when I tell you that when she rode that roller coaster, she wet herself. <laughs> I'm sorry to tell you that my body is closer in reaction to the way my grandmother is than the way my sixth grade self was. I'm closer to this end of the spectrum now in how I react to roller coasters than how my, my younger self was, okay? So try as you might to combat aging. Some, sometimes there's no fighting it. Sometimes there's no fighting. You, you are as old as you are. You know, when they say, you know, 30 is the new 40. No, it's not. I'm sorry. <laughs> 30s, 30s, 40s, 40s, you are, you are what you are, okay? And I say all this to lead into the passage of Scripture that leads to our parable. It's Matthew 7, 15 and following. This is part of the lead into our parable. This is Matthew 7, 15. Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but are inwardly are ravenous wolves. You will recognize them by their fruits. Are grapes gathered from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? So every healthy tree bears good fruit, but the diseased tree bears bad fruit. A healthy tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor can a diseased tree bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Thus, you will recognize them by their fruits. Do you see what Jesus is doing here? Okay, so, so it's not so cut and dry is what he's saying. It's not just that those who are willing to go through the narrow gate are... are uh, our, our disciples. What Jesus is saying is there are people that are willing to go through the narrow gate who still aren't true disciples. There are people who are part of the, the, the Jesus circle who look like they're a disciple, but they actually aren't. See, I, I can do a really good job of pretending that I'm, that I'm young. I can do all kinds of things, but eventually something will come along that reveals my actual age. It's no different for these people that we're talking about who walk through the narrow gate. 
Uh, they, they hold the minority position, as it were. They walk around with the Jesus circle, and they do a good job of presenting themselves as one of the disciples. But along will come something that reveals their true identity and their true character. I think that the, arguably the best example that we see in, in all of Scripture is, is Judas. Do you remember Judas? Judas was the disciple that betrayed Jesus. He, he walked with Jesus. He, he sat at the feet of Jesus and learned from him. He was a firsthand witness of his teaching and, and his miracles. He was a witness to all the other things that all the other disciples saw. What the disciples, the disciples that Jesus used to write a significant portion of the New Testament, those disciples, he heard and saw what they saw. He, you would have assumed, was one who walked through the narrow gate. But what happened? Hold on to that thought for a moment as we read the next section of Scripture that leads up to our parable. It's almost as if Jesus was writing these next verses just for Judas. Uh, He says this in verses 21 to 23, perhaps the most terrifying verse in, in the whole of the New Testament. 21 to 23, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter into the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of of lawlessness. When you read that, does that make you feel a little uncomfortable? I mean, let's be honest. It, It does me. It does me, yeah. There are those among us who enter through the narrow gate, who follow Jesus and maybe even cast out demons in his name, it says. And there are those among us of that subset of people which Jesus will say, I never knew you. Depart from me. That, that makes me feel uncomfortable. And why do you suppose that is? Because I think there's probably a small part of us that wonders, could that be me? Is it possible that's me? What if I stand before him one day, hi, Jesus, and he replies back to me, who are you? I don't know you. Do I know you? I thought you did. Is it possible that I'm a Judas? Am I a Judas? Well, let me, let me ask that question for you. Yep. Yes, I am. I'm a Judas. I'm a Judas. In fact, do you know who else is a Judas? Peter. Peter was a Judas. Okay. Don't you remember? Judas wasn't the only one who betrayed Jesus, right? Peter betrayed Jesus too. Remember, in, in fact, if you look at Judas's behavior and compare it to Peter's behavior, in, in that respect, their, their reaction and their behavior, there's not a nickel's worth of difference between the two of them. They both betrayed Jesus, okay? Let's look at these two instances really quickly. This is so fascinating to me. It's stunning. First, you look at Jesus' anticipation of Judas's betrayal. You'll find this in John 13, beginning in verse 21. It says this. Did I get it? After saying these things, Jesus was troubled in his spirit and testified, Truly, truly, I say to you, one of you will betray me. The disciples looked at one another, uncertain of whom he spoke. One of his disciples, whom Jesus loved, was uh, reclining at the table. That's John, uh, Jesus' aside. So Simon Peter motioned to him and and, uh, to ask of him uh, of who he was, whom he was speaking. So the disciple, leaning back against Jesus, said to him, "Lord, who is it?" Jesus answered, "It is he to whom I will give this morsel of bread when I have dipped it." So when he dipped the morsel, he gave it to Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot. And then after he had taken the morsel, Satan entered into him. Jesus said to him, what you are going to do, do quickly. Does that give you chills? It gives me chills. Those verses are almost as troubling as what we read in in Matthew just right prior to that. Jesus saw his betrayal coming, and at least to some degree, you know that must have been a surprise to Judas, uh, I'm guessing here, because to some extent he probably thought he was getting away with all of this. He probably thought he was doing this secretly without anyone knowing. Uh, 
And, and that most troubling of all, I think, is that we read that Satan entered into him. When we read that, that just, there's something about that that just grates against us. And like, why is that happening? If Satan enters into him, of course he's going to betray Jesus. Of course. It's all very troubling. Now let's look at Peter. This happened on the same night. Perhaps just a bit after Jesus' confrontation with Judas. Jesus is telling Peter that he too will betray Jesus. And in such the brazen way, Peter says to Jesus in Luke twenty-two thirty-three, Lord, I am ready to go with you both to prison and to death. Is that right, Peter? Remember just a moment ago when we were reading about Judas, how it tells us that Satan entered into Judas. Well, what about Peter? This actually is actually what Peter is responding to just, just before this uh, verse where Peter says he's willing to go to prison and death for Jesus. This is what he was told in verse 31. Simon, Simon, behold, Satan demanded to have you that he might sift you like wheat. In verse 34, he says, Jesus said, I tell you, Peter the rooster will not crow this day until you deny three times that you know me. I love how uh, R.C. Sproul describes this scene. He asks his audience to contemplate this metaphor for a moment, that he might sift you like wheat. He says that when a farmer takes his grains of wheat and puts it in the sifter, it's not a laborious task uh, that only the strong can, can perform. It's a fairly easy task. And it may take some time, it may be tedious, but it's not labor-intensive. So Jesus is saying to Peter, Simon, Simon, you, you think you're so special? You, you think you have that kind of resolve? You think you can hold off Satan? Not only is he stronger than you are and it can entice you to fall, but he can do it easily. And just picture someone holding the, the wheat in the hands. It just kind of sifts through their hands. It's almost as if he's saying Satan could make you his play toy if he wanted to. Satan could knock you off your rocker, Simon. See, but unlike Judas, he wasn't knocked off his rocker. Satan didn't enter into Peter. Unlike Judas, Peter wasn't, wasn't the wolf in sheep's clothing. He wasn't dressed uh, or a diseased tree that looks good but produces bad fruit. He's not the one to which Jesus will say, depart from me, I never knew you, Peter. Now, why is that? It's almost the same circumstance between Peter and Judas, okay? He, he knows one and he doesn't know the other. It's not that one was willing to betray and one wasn't willing to betray. That's what we see here. They're both willing to betray. They both did betray, okay? Satan wished to have them, but only managed to get into one. Why is that? See, I was just reading for you the details around Peter's betrayal in Luke 22. And I read for you verses 31, 33, and 34. Uh, I didn't read for you verse 32 because I'm holding back. I like to create some tension <laughs> because it's in verse 32 where our answer is revealed. What's the difference between Peter and Judas? This is it, Luke 22. I'll read verse 31 again, leading into verse 33. Simon, Simon, behold, Satan demanded to have you that he might sift you like wheat. But I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail. And when you have turned again, in other words, when you come back to me, not if, but when, strengthen your brothers. So what's the difference between Peter and Judas? Why was Peter able to turn back to Jesus? Not for anything that Peter did. 
not for anything that Peter did. That's what those verses are telling us. It's not that Peter just had to muster up enough ability to hold on tight. No, what Jesus is saying is that your, def- your, your salvation depends on not your strength, not your strength, but my strength, Jesus is saying. Your salvation depends on my ability, not yours. Your salvation depends on my work, not yours. So false disciples and true disciples. Back in Matthew 7, after Jesus is telling us about true disciples and false disciples and everything we've just been talking about, how does he wrap it up? How does he wrap it all up? With this parable. With this parable. With a parable about a wise man who builds his house upon the rock. Do you you see what this parable is specifically about? We're inching closer to really what this parable really is about, okay? It's about the distinguishing mark between a true disciple and a false disciple. And, And what's a distinguishing mark? That distinguishing mark is wisdom. That distinguishing mark is wisdom. Just, just generic wisdom? Are we talking about, you know, hey, uh, I'm pretty wise in all things, right? Is this what we're talking about? Or is it some sort of specific wisdom of sorts? If we look up the definition of wisdom, we're told it's the quality of having experience, knowledge, and good judgment. All right, the word I want us to zero in on there is the word knowledge. Okay, the wisdom we're looking for centers around knowledge. The wisdom we're looking for centers around the knowledge of something. Okay, what is the knowledge that we are building our house upon? What is it that separates a true disciple from a false disciple? You see, I think we have a tendency to to look at these these verses in in Matthew chapter 7, where it says, I never knew you, depart depart from me, and think, wow, that sounds awful. So so what do I I need to know to not be among those people? How hard do I have to work? What, What are the things I have to do? What do I I have to do on his behalf in order that he doesn't say that to me? And that's the point of all of it. It comes down to wisdom. What is your your bedrock of wisdom that you're building your house upon? What is your bedrock of knowledge that you're building your, your house upon? Not action, but knowledge. The knowledge that tells us that we can't save ourselves. We can't hold up our own righteousness and expect to find favor with God. This is the wisdom that he's talking about. This is what wisdom is. It's the understanding that I don't have the ability. I don't have the wherewithal. I don't have the, I don't have the, the strength to muster up enough, enough goodness that I can accomplish it. That's foolishness. That's the foolishness that, is built, that that house is built upon, that, that sinks to the ground, that goes, that goes splat or smash. Is it splat or smash? Smash. It goes smash. That's the foolishness. It's not that, oh, you're just a dumb person or something like that. It's, it's, the, it's the lack of knowledge that says that I can do something. I can do something to earn my salvation, where wisdom says I don't have the ability. I have to rely upon someone else's ability. And if you have that knowledge, this is, this is, this is the distinguishing mark of this, this parable. If you have that knowledge, if you, if you own that knowledge, if that's something that you believe and know to be true, you are building your house upon the rock. And and the Lord will not say to you one day, depart from me, I knew you. If you have that knowledge, you have that understanding, if you believe that, this is what the scriptures call you to believe that. And if you do that, then the Lord will not say to you, depart from me, I never knew you. He will say to you, well done, good and faithful servant. That's what he'll tell you because you have his wisdom in you. And and, and that's the difference in this parable. Let's stop right there. We we got about a couple minutes before it's time to go to big church. Anyone want to comment or have questions or observations about any of that? Time. Quick question. This is so far off subject. Just stop me and move on. When did when did Satan demand uh, Simon, and when did 
Jesus pray for him? Uh, well, that's a good question. I don't know that we get the exact details on timing or anything, but in terms of from all eternity past, that's my question. We, we know that, that Jesus marked Peter and said, you know, in spite of yourself, not because of yourself, but in spite of yourself, uh, I'm going to own you. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna to pray for you. I'm going to be the one interceding. And, and even now, it's almost like, you know, uh, asking ourselves, you know, when does, when does Jesus pray for us now? Well, he's doing it right now, right? right this, but he lives to make intercession for us, we're told. So it's, it's constant. He's always doing that. He always advocates on our behalf. You know, when we think about praying, we, we think about, uh, you know, let's stop for a moment. Let's say you get down and pray. But with, with Jesus, you know, who is at perfect fellowship with the Father, you know, that's, that's a nonstop thing. You know, he's constantly, he lives to make intercession for you. And so I imagine Peter falls in that same category. That the fact that he lives to make intercession for Peter is the difference between Satan entering into Peter and not entering into Peter. Yeah, Luke. I think he gives a, a good point of, of personal, like an area to enter in and, and grow with God to, to reflect on, you know, I never knew you. And, and like pairing it with um, Lazarus and the rich man where, you know, I've given them all to know me in the law and the prophets. And I, I ask my students, is like, you need to really think, do you love the God of the Bible who revealed himself as he is? Do you love him for who he is? Or there's a wider, easier road. Do you love the benefits that you think mm-hmm. you get according to who you think he is? Yeah. And, and which one of those are you in love with? It's very easy to be in love with benefits according to the parts you agree with. Right. Or do you love God himself as he's revealed himself? And I was like, it's either a point of recognizing like, oh, I, I have no idea. Yeah. Or of saying like, of growing of like, no, I really do just love him. Let me, mm-hmm. let me grow with him. I once heard of a, an illustration along these lines that talks about that, that, you know, reading, you know, for a lot of us, reading was a chore. Uh, growing up and, and reading was uh, something you did for school or when you did when you were in college it was a means to an end well at some point for, for a lot of us you turn the corner where reading stops being something that you have to do and it is the end it's the end unto itself that you enjoy it that much and I think our faith kind of works in the same way because a lot of times people people think about faith in terms of uh, well what am I getting what's the benefit that I'm, what, what, I'm doing this because I have to do that and, and eventually you know Lord willing, you, you turn the corner and realize that, that it's not that you're trying to accomplish something, but it's, it's, it's the relationship. It is the end unto itself. And that you get to live in that fellowship, knowing that, that uh, it's not about benefits, but it's just about living in fellowship with Him and, and, and all the, the wonder that that is and the miracle that that is. Anyone else? Thoughts, comments? Yeah, Sean. I was always bothered by the fact that the, the folks when they get to heaven, the Lord, Lord crowd, yeah. like it looks like they've been bearing fruit. Mm-hmm. You know, they've been doing works in their name the whole life. So, you know, like you look at these people, they've been prophesying, casting out demons. Like, I mean, it, in my mind, I always put that in like the, almost the clergy level. Mm-hmm. You know, like these are people who like devoted their life. Like, just, so just like I said with that, that aging example, there's a lot of things you can do to fool, fool people, like you know. Mm-hmm. And, and at some point, something will come along and around. I think that's what happened with Judas. At some point, something came along and, and revealed his true, his true character. And I know a lot of people have trouble with that. Well, how, how does someone who's not a true disciple cast out demons? Because you remember that even the, the real disciples, that they weren't casting out demons by their own authority. They were still casting out demons by 
someone else's authority, using Jesus' name. Using Jesus's name. It's the same way that if my kids are running around inside the house and I tell them, you know, a long time I've told them, you know, don't slam doors, you know, don't shut doors, leave doors open, don't close doors. And, and so if they're running around chasing each other and one of them slams a door, the, one of them says, dad says not to slam doors or not, or not to open doors, right? So then they have to open it. It's not that the younger son was able to suddenly have authority over the older son. He's using the authority of my name to make him open up that door. Same thing with casting out demons. You know, it's not the person. It's still the authority by which that person comes, which, you know, in some regards, you can, you can even fake that. So would the idea be those folks had been doing all those works to save themselves yeah. mm -hmm. and had never really got the point of it? Mm -hmm. I, th I think that's it. Mm -hmm. Yeah, Tim. Yeah, I've got a, just a little point to add to that. Um, scriptures say, of course, that the fruit of the Spirit are love, joy, Galatians, yeah. self-control. Mm -hmm. So from that perspective, um, casting out demons and crying, Lord, Lord, are not considered fruits of the Spirit, sure, yeah. That's yeah. the way you can tell someone really is a Christian, especially yourself. Mm -hmm. We're told the fruits themselves. To, to um, look at ourselves and, and, and see if we really are in the faith. Mm -hmm. Again, the, the fruit is a byproduct. The fruit is the evidence of, what, of what, what, what's the reality within, you know. But, you know, because uh, you know, I, I could see how someone would, would think that. We'll say, well, this person has love. I see peace and patience in, in those things. But again, it's, 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 that's the byproduct, not the means to earn favor before God. Not doing love, joy, peace, patience so that I earn God's favor. That's the distinguishing characteristic of this parable. That's the difference between wisdom and foolishness here is under whose power, under whose power you're operating and, and, and even employing uh, the, the, uh, the knowledge that you have of Christ. Rosemary. Two points. Three. <laughs> One, for your, for your point, there's like a, a story in the Bible in Acts where there were some Jewish people, I think sons of Sceva or whatever, who were trying to cast out demon. They were not believers in Christ, but then they called on Christ's name to sort of use his power mm -hmm. in, in, for their benefit. And I think the demon answered them, Christ I know. Yeah, but who are you? <laughs> but I was thinking about the fact that at one point, um, I think after he, Paul, uh, Jesus told Paul that Satan is trying to sift you like wheat, that he does call Paul Satan when, when Paul... Yeah, get thee behind me. Yeah, yeah mm -hmm. get thee behind me, Satan. Mm -hmm. I don't know if it's like a wake-up call for him to say, remember what I told you about what Satan wants to do with you. Mm -hmm. sort of like realign yourself with what God wants uh, kind of thing. Yeah, I've always read that verse to, you know, to really understand that just the, the reality of the spiritual realm, you know, that I think for a moment, uh, you know, we, we think about when uh, in, a, in a movie when a character breaks the third wall or whatever it's called, you know, that you know, suddenly starts talking to the audience. It's almost like Jesus for a moment in that moment, you know, is breaks the curtain and says, you know, he's talking to say, get thee behind me, Satan, because he sees the influence that he's having on Peter in that moment. And so he just directly, you know, snaps at him that whatever, whatever is influencing him right now, whatever is swimming around him, you know, Satan himself, you know, he says, get thee behind me, Satan, you know, and I'm sure that was an attention grabber for, for Peter too. Did you have something else you said the three things? Um, <laughs> the narrow and the white gate, um, uh, portion of the parable, um, reminded me of that part where he talks about the eye of the needle and the rich man going through the eye of the needle and how the folks who are able to enter through the narrow gate are folks who have sort of unburdened themselves or they're not carrying anything else with them. They're only seeking to enter there through mm -hmm. their knowledge of God. Whereas mm -hmm. if you're trying to enter through a wider gate, you're trying to bring your wealth and your privilege. All the other things with you. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yep. Well, with that, let's uh, put a button in that. And again, have any, any thoughts, comments, questions? You can always feel free to come visit me. 
here, or you can uh, send me a, an email or, or uh, send me a text message. I'm always happy to work, work through any issues you may have. And so I want to also thank uh, Winston for your help in teaching this morning. I appreciate that. You did a great job, Winston. Thank you. Would someone like to close us in prayer? Who would like to close us in prayer before we, before we leave? Who can do that for us? Thank you all so much for listening, and we hope you tune in next week. If you have any questions, please feel free to leave a comment for us. If you enjoyed the podcast, please leave us a review and subscribe. Have a great week.